going to start off with an Augustine quote. It's actually a question. What is this? See if you can answer this question. What is this? Hands to help others. Feet to hasten the poor and needy. The eyes to see the misery and want. And the ears to hear the sighs and the sorrows of men. What is that? Love. It's the church. All its gifts. And... The church is to practice love. And that's what our topic really is, is today as we uh, move into uh, another chapter. Chapter 13. One of the most favorite passages of all the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13. You know, for the average church attender, they know about this, don't they? For the one who seldom goes to church, kind of nominal, they know about this. 1 Corinthians 13. They may not know the book and the chapter, but... They know about these words. And some who don't even profess to be Christians would also know about these words that are in Corinthians about love. Uh, They wouldn't be familiar uh, exactly with, with the Bible, but they've heard of this. So I would say that this is probably and maybe arguably the best known and best loved chapters in all the Bible or one of them. I'm sure Psalm 23 is another one that people would uh, know. It's read at funerals so many times. But it has eloquent beauty. And you can think of the literary form that it's been put in. It uh, is incredible. Uh, Loved and adored by many. And matter of fact, you can find it everywhere. Anywhere you can go. If you go into a Christian bookstore, I can tell you, you'll probably find this. You would probably find it on plaques and tracks and frames and bookmarks and cards and mugs and wedding bulletins and calendars and everything that you can think of, you'll find this 1 Corinthians 13. Um, especially on wedding gifts. That's where you see it most often. And that's well and fine. It's good. It's good to get the Scripture out. But I'm afraid that a lot of people would not be able to tell really what this is all about. It sounds good. It's talking about love. Uh, it's nice and flowery, isn't it? I can just see it with flowers right now as uh, this, the first few verses in this Corinthians, but it happens to be a chapter that's sandwiched in between two chapters that is the same flow. When we started in chapter 12, we started talking about uh, the spiritual gifts and how God equips the church, and that's why you guys answered the church, which I pretty well figured you would probably say that, and and that's right. That was the right answer, but also the church has to be filled with the love of Christ. And what Paul was doing in this section in chapters 12, 13, and 14 is rebuking a church that was not using their spiritual gifts rightly and they were prideful and boastful and arrogant. Others were jealous of the other ones who had these kind of showy gifts. And so we continue on. Uh, when, When you read this section... I think you have to know the context, don't you? I think if anybody quotes out of 1 Corinthians 13 as flowery and as beautiful and eloquent as it seems, they still need to know what is the setting here. And that's why when we study books of the Bible, whether it be on your own, or whether we be in Bible studies, or you know, here in, the, in this uh, setting that we have here today in worship, you know... We always have to say, okay, who wrote this? Why was it written? What is it all about? 
we want to be very careful about the setting of where it is at. And of course, this was 2,000 years ago. We start with that immediately. We don't start with, what does this mean to me? Although that always comes into play. We want to apply Scripture. We don't want just scriptural knowledge in the head and not be able to use it. And that's what our text is really dealing with today here. But we want to know, what is he saying first of all to them? And then applying all the rules and then bring it out and say, this must apply to me too. Lord, what, what is this? How does this work? And in chapter 12, he numbered uh, a lot of gifts there. And uh, he didn't give us a complete list. Uh, there's no way that I, I think you could list all the gifts there are. Um, we've kind of talked about that. The, the, the combinations of uh, the different gifts, it's, it's just no way we could do that. But uh, we are to edify one another with our gifts. And we know that that is the uh, real reason for them. We know that God is the one who sovereignly gives these gifts. That's what we've studied in chapter 12 already. We're getting this, this context. So we want to treat it fairly. We don't want to treat it out of context or something that Dennis just grabbed out and says, oh, this would be a good one to go on. Let's, let's do this one. Without explaining what, what's going on in this whole book and in, in this area. Uh, there were individuals that were desiring certain gifts. And uh, because it looked good, others had them, they wanted them, so they uh, either got very mad because they didn't have it or they faked it or whatever they did, and others were hanging it over their heads because you don't have what I have. You can imagine the, the kiddie way that they were. They were like kids all the way through here. We've seen that. And that's the way that the nature is. Isn't that mankind in his flesh? And Paul ends chapter 12 with uh, verse 31. He says, But earnestly desire the best gifts. Now he's already said, not everybody's going to have the same gift. And there's, there's certain gifts that you can't have. It's not yours. God didn't give them to you. You have this gift, you use this. That's, that's his whole point. And then he says, But I earnestly desire the best gifts. That's what I want you to do. And then he says, and I show you a more excellent way. Here is the best of the gifts right here in chapter 13. The greatest gift really is love. And this one we all have. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have love. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Only thing is, we need to show it out front. We need to show what's inwardly there, the Holy Spirit, so it has to come out. And it's spring and there are plenty of things coming out. Have you noticed that? I have. <laughs> That's why you're looking at me this morning and saying, what's wrong with his eyes? What did he do? <laughs> you know, or uh, the voice sounds kind of funny. Well, uh, the next few weeks it'll probably be like this. <laughs> it's just... It's just my body saying, hey, what's going on? There's too many things coming out all at one time. And so, so it goes. But the Lord is good. I'm glad I'm here today. <laughs> and I can function. I think I can think half the time. I might need help somewhere along the line. <laughs> but we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to make it here. In this present day context, we see that we too have gifts and we too are to pursue love. The fruit. We want to bear fruit, right? We want to show it outwardly. So we can start to apply this too. We, we saw that they had divisions and they had confusion. And right in the midst of this, I have to call this a jewel. This chapter 13 is an incredible chapter. 
just like all of the rest of them are, but this is a little bit different. You say, wow, we're getting into the positive. Man, Dennis, you can make me feel good today. <laughs> and the thing is, this, as Alistair Begg has said, is like a mirror. When we really look at what is happening, especially in 4 through 7, and by the way, if you look at the outline, it doesn't look like we're going to get there today. And uh, if we do, that means I'm really running through this quick and I won't be able to cover it because I'm not ready for that section. <laughs> but I don't think we have to worry about that. It's a mirror. If you look at 4 through 7, you'll say, oh, well, that's really nice. Love suffers long. It's kind. Love does not envy and does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Does not provoke. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. And when you really look at it and really start looking at it, you begin to see that you fall short of these in your own flesh. This is one of the best pictures of Jesus Christ found in verses 4 through 7. You want to see what Jesus looks like? There He is. When we have Christ, we too then can practice these. These are action words. And it's a challenge to the historical Corinthian church when Paul says this. That's why he's saying it. Here, this is the gift you really need to be showing. You don't have it, Corinth. And here's what it is. I'm going to show you where you fall short. And so he lists those. And I think it would be that it's very convicting. It's very uncomfortable. And it cuts us down to size. And it shows that, again, we, uh, as we look at that reflection, we are falling short of the great glory of God. But we are to practice this. And we have every bit of the power to do it. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we, we have the Holy Spirit. We have His power to, to do this. Now, the first thing we have to define is this term, love. I mean, if we're going to be talking about this, we want to know what we're talking about. This is the topic. I think probably it might be the most misunderstood English word and maybe... Uh, of all the languages of the world. It is not eros, love, which is what we see in the movies and TV. And basically the idea of most people that get married base it on, on eros, love, and uh, also philae, love. Eros, the sexual kind of love. Philae, love is the affectionate, tender love that you would have for somebody. It's not either of those kind of loves. And it's not storge. And that is just a natural kind of love that one would have for their family, for their kids, and the kids for their mom and dad. And I'm even seeing in the days that we live in now, that kind of love is being taken out. Have you noticed that? Where parents kill their babies, they put them in bathtubs and cold water and let them actually die there. All They beat them. They shake them. We hear about all that all over the place. And then we hear about kids killing their mom and dad. You know, we've had cases around here like in Columbia and, and, and whatever. Brother killing brother, sister killing sister, and on and on. And that's a storge love. It's just a natural love that you just have for somebody. And it says in the last days um, that there will be a storge. There will be no love. 
a natural love for them. So we've seen three kinds of love that was in Greek literature. There was one word that was very, very, very rare to be found in Greek literature. That word is agape. And we know about that word. As a matter of fact, you will not hardly even see it. In the New Testament, it's imported because all the other Greek words do not fit with the kind of love that we're talking about all the way through the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter. It's equivalent to that word. It does not convey adequately at all what the word means. It's the love of God. Agape love really is God's love. It transcends all ideas that man has of love. It goes much further than what man could ever ever have on his own. So it cannot be confused with any other type of love, can it? When we look at those other three words, now we have one word in our English language basically for love. Love. <laughs> and that can mean anything. Oh man, I, you know, I love my I love my Bible. You know, I I uh I love baseball. But that doesn't get it. That's not the kind of love that we're talking about, right? No, we should have a love for other brothers and sisters and for husbands and wives, that godly kind of love. But there's also the filet love. And those other loves do fit in, but we know that it's misunderstood. Uh, Leon Morris, a great commentator, has a great quote on this. I think it really fits. Uh, he says this, It's the love for the utterly unworthy. A love that proceeds from a God who is Himself love. It is a love lavished out on others without a thought whether they are worthy to receive it or not. And he starts off there. It's, it's loving somebody that's utterly unworthy. Now that is a God kind of love, isn't it? Because that is what we once were. We were utterly unworthy. We were unloving. Why would anybody want to love us? What kind of love is this in 1 John? John asked that question. What manner of love is this? It's foreign. Yeah, it's so foreign. It's, it's the God kind of love. It transcends our ideas. Um, don't we tend to be attracted to other people who are attractive? Even as Christians, don't we tend to be that way? Sure, we might know that it's good to extend our hand and, and help to somebody who is not lovely. And, 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 and many people do that. Uh, sometimes I don't know what the motives would be. But really, it's loving the unlovely, the unworthy. Agape is essential to the body of Christ. So essential. It was absent in Corinth, wasn't it? They didn't exhibit this kind of love hardly at all. It's a self-giving love. It demands something of us to self-give. That's what we are told to do. Uh, is it not better to give than to receive? So a lot of people, and I think most people, get married. They say they love that other person. Usually ask them, well, why are you getting married? We love each other. Well, that's not really the real reason that Christians should 
get married and say, what? What are you talking about? No, the real reason is that we are glorifying God in this marriage. And as a result of that, as we glorify God in this marriage, we will show love to the other. Because it can only come from God. He has to be in this. That's the idea of it. So it's a sacrificial love. When two people love each other, they are not getting them for what they can get out of the relationship. And then a year later, they don't have a relationship. What happened? They were looking for something that the other person didn't really have. And they thought it was going to be different. Especially after that first year, after the honeymoon is over. This happens all over. You know, Christians, non-Christians alike. It's, it's incredible. And all of you can identify with that. We, we know. It comes down to not feelings, but a determined act of your will. When you love that person, you don't feel like it now, you don't want to do anything for them, but you know what is right. And you're determined to do that. Even if you think, you know, say, well, that's hypocritical. Then if you, if you go ahead and do something you don't feel like, then I'm just being a hypocrite and I'm just doing it anyway and I should really be myself. Well, that's the problem. We're trying to be ourselves rather than having Christ shine through us to do something that we can do. He says, love your enemies. I don't know too many people that really, really feel like loving your enemies. Especially if they're shooting at you. Or they want to take your money or whatever. But this sacrifice is an act. It is an act. It's not always feelings. It's great when it's an act and the feelings. That's beautiful. And those things work out. But in Romans 5.10, we are told that God loved us while we were enemies. While we were yet enemies. matter of fact, everything a Christian does really is to be done in love. Just having good theology doesn't mean love, does it? One can know the Bible front and back, and if they have not love for some others, then it is not what we're talking about, right? John Stott defined it in a very helpful way for us to understand this. He says, when we come to the love in chapter 13... This love is a servant of the will. I want you to get this. It's a servant of the will, not a victim of our emotions. Let me say that again. When we come to love in chapter 13, this love is a servant of the will. It's not a victim of our emotions. What do we usually do whenever somebody has done something to us? or to somebody else, and and we respond in the wrong way, we have become really a a victim of our emotions. We let the emotions control. Never let it rise over what we know to be true and just believing in that truth. It's a spiritual discipline. It's hard. It's not natural. This godly kind of love, this agape, can't be faked. It all has to come from here. It's a strong word. It's not a weak word. When you say love in our English language, it almost seems like something cozy, cuddly, real comfortable. You know? It's a beautiful thing. And it is, but it's a strong word. And we can't operate our gifts 
staying in context now, in chapter, like in chapter 12. We can't operate those gifts without love. And that is really what Paul is really hitting down here. A man lay down his what? His life for his friends. The greatest definition of love is that supreme self-sacrifice. Sacrificing self. And of course we know that's the, the cross is all in that. So that's what Paul is stressing here. And uh, if we don't have this kind of love, we are worse than nothing, as he says. Now, after that introduction, with that thought, as we continue on for the next however long it is in this section... We'll draw upon those things and think about that definition. Let's read the word here. Enough for my introduction. Verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Okay. Quite a text. We've all heard this many times. Without love, I'm just a nuisance. That's noisy. If... In, in this case right here, I think what he's doing in all of this is he's doing hyperbole. He's taking it all the way to the max and just making it uh, almost sound ridiculous. But he's magnifying this and in, into this, uh, this kind of wording to get across his point. Because they really needed to know. They needed to know this. Now, he starts off with since he's been talking about the gifts and what's one of the problems in Corinth, one of the biggest ones uh, here we see is uh, the, the tongues issue. And he'll get into that and express it more into chapter 14. But uh, the emphasis here is in a static speech. And what they were doing is using these as a means of putting themselves over other people to show how spiritual they were. So they had these kind of gifts, let's say, and some of them were legitimate. And the thing is, is what's happening? Well, instead of having love, they were having chaos. So Paul starts with this one. He has many others he's going to comment on here. Um, the, many people love that experience of the, the tongues and the languages. And then it added on to their pride. But the thing is, the most important fruit that one has was not there as they uh, would be ministering. The most important fruit, we know, is uh, this, this love. And it wasn't about anything dealing with a babbling. So Paul uh, addresses this first. This is just one of, of many things. He, but, he, but he hits this. Now the word for tongues there is glossa. And when you think of uh, certain books, you'll have a glossary, right? It's dealing with... Uh, words, that kind of thing. The glossa can mean a physical organ of speech. Right there. It can mean language. It can mean tongues. And so language, as we interpret this word here, would be the word. And he's talking about a, a language that men have, and angels have. He takes it from 
the worldly, or from from people all the way into something heavenly. He's he's using this as a hyperbole again. Remember that, and that's the word here, uh, language. I think because if we look back and let's look. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We have lots of cover here. But in Acts 2, give a little history here. Acts 2, let's go to uh, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now what has happened is that you had the 120 in the upper room, the Holy Spirit comes. The evidence has now been made that He is there. He showed it. There was something visible, something um, um, audibly as they're speaking with each other, and now they're going to go outside, and they're going to be people from all over the known world. Different countries, different nations, and here's what's happening. People are living there, are staying there. We we are at a feast. Uh, This is the Feast of Pentecost. And so when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So there's how it starts. They're speaking with people. These people are from different countries, which naturally they're going to speak some other language. And so now you have these Galileans who have just been filled with God's Spirit. Holy Spirit has come. The birth of the church has happened. And they're now going to communicate. And they have never studied these languages. And all of a sudden, God gives them this gift to be able to communicate with somebody else and they can understand them. So they spoke in their own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? These are those dumb hayseeds way up north up there. And they're speaking to these guys and they're communicating. They're talking with each other. So how are they doing this? We know they don't know those languages. When you hear of people being able to speak French and German and Russian and uh, Italian and Spanish, you go, wow, those guys are good. They've been studying. You know, it's people have multiple languages. Well, all of a sudden, that's what they have. But they didn't study. <laughs> they didn't go to school to do this. How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And, and he names them here. Parth. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And others mocking said, they're drunk. <laughs> they're full of new wine. What does this mean? Well, we know they're not drunk. But they are filled with God's Spirit. And they are speaking in other languages or tongues, if you may. The word is the same as we are in Corinth here and still in the Glossa. Glossalia. And it's again saying a language. And there we know that's what it is. It's not some kind of babble where other people can't understand them. But it's something that other people could understand. And so they're making uh, uh, quite the impact right there in Jerusalem as this is happening. 
quite an incredible thing. So it, it served as a sign to the new Christians that what they had was uh, it was legitimate. Hey, what I have is what you you're doing the same thing, and it convinced them that God had come in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had already told them that I'm going to uh, give you the Holy Spirit. And of course, He was with them for 40 days, and then 10 days uh, after 10 days after He ascended. So 50 days after His resurrection, we have Pentecost. And that fulfilled a, uh, an Old Testament uh, feast also. It's a sign to unbelieving Israel. And you'll see that in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, what are tongues for? They're a sign to Israel, to the unbeliever. And that's quoted out of Isaiah. And when we get to that text, we'll, we'll deal with that. But... Um, so, you know, we want to cover other ground today. But um, he's trying to say uh, the way that you function in the body, that's, that's the key. If you see what's happening here, we see that they use this gift to then go to other people who couldn't understand and they gave them the gospel. And there were thousands of souls saved that day as Peter preached a message and then they were able to speak that and everybody understood uh, what was being said. If we go to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, and of course that's our that's a text that we've already been in. In verse 10 he says, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, glossa, to another the interpretation of tongues. Uh, and interpretation means to translate. If you take that Greek word there, it means to translate uh, a language. And that's of course, that's what we need uh, today. Or you can go on your computer and you have automatic translators. You can go on and talk uh, with Russian with people and just put the translator on and boom, you're sitting there automatically talking. It's incredible. I don't know how it works. I don't even want to know. I just say, this is cool. <laughs> We've got an interpreter here, a translator. Um, if you, if you um, go back to Acts 2, in verse 6, it says, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language or even dialect. Uh, verse 8, and how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Uh, a dialect. They're understanding this. Now go to Acts 10 and you will see something like this happen again as you have Peter and Cornelius, and now you're going to even people who are Gentiles here, outside the realm of Judaism now, that are going to hear the gospel. And Peter is sent to them, and this is where he's had this, um, you know, all the animals come down before him, and God said it was okay to eat them now. He, he, He was saying, okay, that was food that Gentiles ate. Now you as Jews can now go to them. It's okay, that has been taken off now. Um, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. So they're uh, to take that out. In Acts 10, verse 44, Peter's preaching to this group of Gentiles in this home. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. And as many as came with Peter became the gift of the Holy Spirit and then poured out on the Gentiles also. Remember Acts 2 in the upper room? The Holy Spirit came and poured Himself out on them. 
And we have that here with Jews recognizing now the Gentiles are getting this and the Gentiles are going to recognize the Jews have this. And so you have something here that is saying, wow, there's something to this. This is the same thing. For they heard them speak with tongues, glossa, language, and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Same thing happened there at Cornelius' household representing Gentiles, people outside of the Jewish faith. They don't necessarily know Hebrew, but now they're understanding this particular gospel. You go all the way out to Acts 19, verse 6, and this goes to Ephesus, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We've gone to Jerusalem and Judea, um, Samaria, and now we're going to go way out to Ephesus. Paul is preaching there. And these are the ones who believed in John's baptism. Verse 5, it says, When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul has now corrected them and showed, okay, that's been fulfilled. Uh, We are now uh, in the person of Jesus Christ that we're talking. And his baptism. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were twelve in all. Now you have Gentiles way out there who are from Ephesus who are speaking to Paul like um, he had that gift as he went across the world and out in the world to be able to speak the languages that the rest of the world had as he went to Italy, for instance. Of course, we know um, that he was uh, gifted in a lot of ways. But he's able to speak uh, this foreign language that they understand. They now understand him and that proves to him and it proves to them that this Holy Spirit and this conversion is real. Now we have a lot of evidence happening. And um, we'll see uh, more of this in chapter 14. Now let's go back to our text. Chapter 13. He uses tongues of men, languages of men, and of angels. Now, nowhere in the Bible do we see angel language. You'll not, you don't see it outside of, like right here. And you could jump into that and say, oh, the angels speak in languages. I'm sure they speak and communicate somehow what Paul was doing. Remember, he's taking this to its max, to the very end of it all, and he's saying, okay, listen, if you had the most magnificent voice, could speak all the languages of the world, and could speak some kind of language that goes even beyond this world, whatever that is, you could be so eloquent in your way that you speak you could be very cogent in your arguments and very very convincing when you were at debates. People would be amazed and wondering about the way you speak. But if you did it without love, it is useless. So there's the point. That's really, when you take all this in, into, into play, I know I've gone to extremes of bringing out things you know, that, that are in Scripture that are here that fits the context. And we want to fit the words in there for what they mean, not what... We, you know, maybe think they mean, but what, what does it mean here? What is God saying? And at their time, and now we say, oh, okay. As far as the angelic language, 
Paul uses the hyperbole and he says, even if I could use known languages and languages that are even outside the, this universe without love, it's all in vain. Now, he uses uh, an illustration here that I think is rather funny, but it's all part of the hyperbole. He says, "With you can be as eloquent as you possibly can be, do all the languages... You don't have love? You're like a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. I'm going to use our drummer up here. He doesn't know this. I'm going to have him come up here for a second. You don't have to go behind the drums if you want. Or can you get a stick? And, can, and, and we could do this without him actually doing it. And I debated on whether to do this or not. But we'll see what Paul is talking about. Here's a cymbal right here. And he takes the stick. I want you to do that for uh, a few seconds. Just kind of keep it up. Do a little bit louder. And he keeps doing it, keeps doing it, keeps doing it. I'm trying to talk. And we got, oh, we got to go on going now. And it just keeps on going. And going. I don't know. <laughs> How long could you put up with that? Now, if you had music going along with that, and it fits in, you have a melodious sound, and it's amazing how music can come together. But a cymbal, just to be, be, uh, to be hit on, and a gong, just to be driven like that, can you imagine how long could it go before every one of us would be driven crazy? That about did it right there, didn't it? But it's amazing how that can be fit into music, and it's like, oh, that gives everything just kind of blends in. Uh, thank you guys. Very good. Those are real drummers too. So <laughs> you almost had two melodious things going on here. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Clanging cymbals, banging gongs and such. Continuous. Now put this into context. Take it back historically. You guys will remember this lesson for one reason. You'll remember Nondor and Bob getting up and doing the symbol thing. You will not remember anything that I said today, but you'll remember that. I can guarantee you. That's why illustrations are great. <laughs> In the rituals of Sibyl, uh, Dionysius, very common in that part of the world. We, we've talked about this very much. And we've got to understand where the early Christians came from, way out there in the Corinthian and the Greek world. Uh, they were into pagan rituals. And uh, they had... False gods, Sybil and Dionysius being two of those. And what would happen is, of course, we talked about the Lord's Supper and how that came into play and how they took from their own ideas from where they had been before and uh, the drunkenness was happening in the church. Well, in the worship of Dionysius, you would have all these Alcoholic drinks that would get people into having some kind of a communion with their gods. And then they would be accompanied by, guess what? Clanging cymbals and smashing gongs and blaring trumpets. And you have all this going on in this ritual and these pagan rites. It's just amazing what was going on. When you go out and try to operate your spiritual gifts, no matter how good you are, no matter how far it goes, if the motive isn't love, it's like those banging cymbals. 
clanging on. If you don't have love, and, and have you ever noticed that? Have you ever know, have you talked with some people who just know it all? I mean, they know it all, man. <laughs> They're glad to tell you it all, and they'll just keep on going with their voices. And I won't give that illustration I used before at the store, but anyway, I saw I've seen that many times where people just talk, 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 talk. They've got everything, and boy, they're gonna they're gonna give you everything that they know in in a space of uh, fifteen minutes if you got it for them. But they don't have they don't have a love. They're talking about themselves, trying to draw people to themselves. It's nothing better than a pagan ritual when people have even the best elegant speech, being able to discourse with anybody, and at the same time, they don't care about anybody. It's, they might as well be banging on the gong, ringing the unmelodious cymbals, and it's just irritating to people. And I know we've got this first verse. We've gone and gone with it, beating it, beating it into the ground here. But the best speech of the earth is the best. It's not the, the best orator or the most gifted person, but it's one who has love for another. Other, otherwise, it's just a racket in it. Okay, we're going to verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so I can remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now he goes into prophecy and knowledge and faith. Prophecy without love is just useless. Just like the language there. In Ephesians 4.15 Paul gives us a list. And in Corinthians, we've already seen that that word has been used, prophecy. And I know the first thing that we think about so often is when we hear that word, we automatically think about something where somebody is telling the future. They are foretelling the future. We've been in Ephesians study um, on the Monday night studies. This probably sounds uh, like it's going on and on, and, and we've done it in Corinth here because we've run into this gift. But in four fifteen, he says, uh, "From the whole body, join and knit together by whatever joint supplies, according to the effect of working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love." That's verse sixteen. 15, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head Christ. So there is speaking. It's proclaiming. The idea is when we prophesy, it's something that we proclaim the truth. It's something that's being foretold. It can include into the future, but most often than not, it means uh, preaching, proclaiming. And we are to do it in love. It says in Ephesians 14. We've heard that so many times. And then he ends it up in verse 16. Edifice. We are to be edifying in uh, love. Um, if we turn to chapter 14 just for a moment. Acts 14. Um, verse 1. We get a real good definition in verse 3. Pursue love. That's, that's the thing you are to pursue and desire. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts but especially that you may prophesy. He says, desire that you 
can prophesy or proclaim. Not necessarily telling somebody what's going to happen in the future. For for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. There is the idea. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more than you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. It's for understanding. So when somebody is speaking a language to somebody else, great. Paul says, hey, I've got it. I wish you all could do that and just go out. But obviously not everybody's going to have that. We can go out and give the gospel and go to foreign nations, foreign people, and speak. It is for understanding. But he says, here's one thing I want all to have to be able to proclaim so that you can do what? In verse 3. Speak edification, exhortation, and comfort. That is what proclaiming God's Word is about. That one would be edified, that one would be exhorted, and one would be comforted. And that's what the idea of prophecy is for. It's probably a good definition there. Um, Something that's edifying, uh, exhorting and comforting. Um, To speak forth that. To make it clear. To show forth this gospel. He says, that's what we want about. You guys are talking confusion and messing people up and they can't understand. And what good is that? It's edifying yourself. Gifts are not made to what? Edify self. They are meant to share with others. And so we know that there have been prophets in the Bible. There was a prophet who had no love But he was a prophet. He wasn't even really for the Jewish people. And if you go back to Numbers 24, we'll see who this prophet is. Have you got it yet? You know what we're talking about? Numbers 24, this is Balaam. Oh, this is a false prophet. But he actually spoke some truths of God regardless. In verse 15, So he took up up his oracle, this is Balaam, and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Well, when you, uh, when you see verse 17, you recognize something that uh, comes up a lot during Christmas time. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Who is that? The Messiah. He actually gave a prophecy. Really, probably not really knowing what all that meant. But God actually allowed him, worked through him to put this forth. And yet we see what kind of prophet he is by going over to chapter 25, verse 1. Now Israel remained in Acacia, Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. 
Now, he had been speaking prophecy. Israel was to understand that. Here is a result of what happens to the people. They have harlotry. And then you move over to verse uh, chapter 31, verse 16. Pick it up, verse 15. And Moses said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. This was to be a vengeance on the Midianites. And Moses goes back and uses history and says, do you know what happened here? The, uh, this story of them goes back to the council of Balaam. And so the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord. And we saw what, what they were doing. Uh, and, and if you want to see the result of this, go down to verse 8. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. Balaam, the son of Baor, they also killed with the sword. So he had to be taken out too. He is a false prophet. He prophesied, but it wasn't with love. And we see that he did it for money. He was a prophet for hire. We know about Balaam. In Matthew 7, we see Jesus speak to people. Uh, and actually what it is, it is coming at the judgment. He says there's going to be many people saying that they're Christians. And they did this and did that. In verse 21 of Matthew 7, probably sounds very familiar. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, people who profess to be Christians, they call Him Lord, who shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. There is a significant statement. The one who does the will of God proves that he is a Christian. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Your name? There's the word prophesied, isn't it? cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name. And here is one of the worst statements that anybody could ever hear. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He called them for what they were. They didn't do the will of the Father, but they did prophesy, but they were false prophets. Matter of fact, they cast out demons and they did many wonders in Christ's name, but they were not real. Wow. Is that a message that rings true today? Without love, it's no value. There was a prophet with love, and there were many prophets. One of them being Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah really cared about the people when he gave a prophecy. Jeremiah 8.18 I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. My heart is faint. I would comfort myself in sorrow. So sorrow and, and they're fainting in that. Verse 21 For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Chapter 9, verse 1. 
Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He weeps for his people as disobedient as they were and he really has a love for them even though they're going to be judged. I can think of Paul, chapters 9, 10, 11 of uh, Romans, where he says, oh, that I could be accursed so that my people could be saved. You know, I mean, he's, he's weeping and mourning and sorrowing if that even be possible. Oh, he grieved over them. Do you think that was with love? Yes. Jesus wept for old Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Yeah. But they did not respond to this. Now, what about knowledge? If I have all knowledge, well, in Corinthians chapter 8, we kind of address that. Chapter 8, verse 1. Kind of goes right along with this text here. Now, concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but... Love edifies. So the knowledge in itself, you know, if you knew all the mysteries, the mysteries, uh, truths in the Old Testament that are revealed in the New Testament, but Paul is taking it all the way on out through the universe. If you could know everything there is to know, I mean like the omniscient, like God is, I mean He knows every little thing, Right? says, even if you could have that, remember, he's using hyperbole. We know that's impossible. That'd be true. If you don't have love, it's totally useless. Wow. If you understood everything there is to know in the universe and you don't have love, what is that? What is that knowledge? How about faith? Again, Paul uh, uses some of these gifts where he has used... uh, the tongues, he's used prophecy, he's used knowledge, and then faith, all those are gifts that he's already defined or mentioned in chapter 12. If you have that gift of faith where you just believe in God in impossible situations, you have that particular gift where you know that any obstacles, whatever it be, spiritual obstacles, what have you, whatever they are, they, they can be moved out of the way and you don't have love, it'd be nothing. The man who has faith in God, but not love. I can think of Jonah, the prophet, who prophesied truth, and he believed God. He knew what was going to happen when he preached to the Ninevites. That is what is sad. Because he knew that they would be converted. And he did not want the enemy, the Ninevites, to be converted. And so, therefore, I want to go to them. Jonah 4, first three verses. I believe God. I know what He can do and I know what He will do. He didn't like it. He actually kind of did it without love, didn't He? Verse 1. Chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he became angry. They've repented. Wouldn't you want to be rejoicing? Not him. He's angry. 
So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are gracious and merciful. Oh, did, did you catch that? He knows the true God, and he knows those attributes of God, and he knows what would happen when he is sent there. I, I mean, he had faith in God. I commend that faith. You are a gracious and merciful God. You are slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Well, that's a great praise, isn't it? One who relents from doing harm. He's a good God. He will keep judgment from happening. And then he says this, Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live the Lord comes and says, is it right for you to be angry? <laughs> I mean, God did an amazing miracle. He converted a whole city. It's like con- converting a million people like that. They all were. Even the animals, I mean, in the sense, they're not that they are converted souls, but even they did what was right. Oh, unbelievable. Jonah. No love. He was a prophet without love there. Was Jonah a believer? Yeah. Wow. Why would a believer want to do that? Why do believers not practice love? Verse 3, and we're out of here. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. He's speaking to someone here in a slow process. Gives all of his possessions away. Different people. He gives everything. Just everything out of his abundance. Well, that's an amazing thing. That is truly a gift of giving, isn't it? We've already kind of looked at that gift. All his possessions. All that it is. And he even sells it. Takes that money. Buys food. Feeds the people one bite at a time. I mean, in the sense what we're talking about is that it... He just kept giving and giving and giving and giving till he had nothing. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, the Bible commends that. But he's, he's taking this all the way to the ultimate hyperbole. This is ultimate giving, and that's, that's giving, but it's zero. If he's doing it to say, look at this. I can give it. I can do it. But he's doing it for the wrong motive. How can that be? We're talking about giving an entire fortune away. What's the motive? Has to be love. In Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking here, verse 3. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. Talking about doing a charitable deed in the right way. We know in verse 2, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Uh, and they have things banging and, and such. They have the bells ringing whenever they put the money in, and they clang in there, you know, and then wearing their outfits, and people would see them. Look at those guys. How they're giving and taking care of the poor. 
I think we kind of have that in our nation here. Sometimes when we giving to help people who sometimes people can even help themselves. One can go on to the most agonizing, horrible deaths for martyrdom. Light themselves up. Burn themselves up. Whatever it is. Put themselves on a cross where everybody can see. Or go through martyrdom. But it's not for the right reason. It's looking to be that way. So people would recognize. And there is a hyperbole here. It extends all the way out. If anything is not motivated by love, it will profit nothing. No matter how much one suffers for Christ, if uh, his service there is to bring attention, uh, his gain is all that that is. It's not in love. So whatever the outside of my deed is, however sacrificial it may be, however significant it may be in what we do and give and help, inside is what counts, doesn't it? That the love is what Christ is concerned about. The inside here must be love, and that comes out on the outside. And so Paul has just introduced us to what we'll get into next week about the picture of Jesus Christ, about what love really is. And uh, it is definitely incredible. It's something that we all want to pursue constantly in, in our daily walk. Let's pray.